<laughs> I'm laughing at my wife. So it's Easter Sunday, which is a big deal in our tradition. It's a day that we celebrate our beginning. It's a day that we look to an event that happened on a day, a day in which our categories of reality were dramatically expanded. It's a day in which we celebrate the insight that death is not the final word. It's a day that we celebrate that there is a reality that is bigger than decay. There is a reality that is bigger than decline. It is bigger than the deterioration that every one of us go through, that every one of us see in the world around us and in our own bodies and lives. It's also a day that we celebrate <clears throat> that our shadow sides are not the truest true, that the dark side of our souls are not the realest real. It's a day that we celebrate that the lesser versions of ourselves, what the tradition calls sin or flesh or shadow or shortcoming, it's a day that we celebrate that this lesser version of self, this also is not the final word. It is not the truest true or the realest real. Also, it's a day that we celebrate a primal truth, and that is the truth that we experience in every dimension of our lives. And that is that death experienced in one dimension actually serves as a harbinger of life in another dimension. <clears throat> That's a great truth that we saw on this day long ago, but it's also a great truth that we see in our own lives. It kind of speaks to the way the planet works. The death of the old in one dimension is a necessary prerequisite for life to emerge in another. Now, the early Christians, when they were trying to explain their experience of the first Easter, when they were trying to capture this new insight that they were having, this new experience, and they were trying to put it into words, when they were trying to make meaning of their experience of the Spirit of the risen Christ, they were looking around for words and for stories and for images. And as I've mentioned on other Easter's, they hit on a story from Egyptian mythology that had been translated from Egypt into uh, Greece and then into Rome. And it was the story of the phoenix. The phoenix was a symbol for about the first 150 to 200 years of Christian life. We now remember the fish, but the phoenix was just as much uh, one of the early Christian symbols. And it is a story that tells of a bird who, uh, as death approaches, pulls together a funeral pyre and then lights that fire, is engulfed in the flame of that fire, and out of the flame and out of the ashes that are left over emerges a new bird, a new life, a new existence, a new reality, a new being. And that, the early Christians said, this captures something of this experience of the spirit of the risen Christ. Like Christ, the early Christians said, some part of us dies. Some part of us burns away. Some part of us is destroyed. And as frightening as that is, a new part of us, a part we sometimes didn't even know was there within us, emerges into a newness of life. The old dies away and the new is born. It's a thing. It's a thing that is returned to by our tradition and other spiritual traditions in the attempt to describe spiritual experience. 
and it keeps being returned to generation after generation because it's a spiritual reality. It reflects the way things are. So when, for centuries on this day, Christians greet each other with the words, He is risen, we are doing that to speak of Jesus. Yes, that's true. But Paul made it clear we are also speaking of our own lives and our own experiences. Because Paul said that Jesus was the herald, the messenger, the omen that spoke of a new way of being alive for all of us. A new way of experiencing our time on this planet, our humanity. It was not only Jesus' resurrection that gives Easter its longevity over these thousands of years. It's that year after year and century after century and millennia after millennia, as we gather to greet one another with those words, we affirm both Jesus' experience and our own. We tell Jesus' story, but we also tell our own stories. So on this spiritual journey that we walk, as we walk it, something dies. It always does. Something always dies. And death is frightening. Death can even cause panic when we start to see it coming. Or death can cause us to get very active in something else so as to distract ourselves so that we don't see it. Death causes us to run or to fight or to kick or to scream or to distract. We don't like death. But our tradition affirms it is nothing to fear. It is nothing to fear. Not death for our bodies, not death for our egos. So all over the planet today, churches are affirming this with the ancient words. They are saying with us, death is not the final word. They are singing as we did, where, O oh death, is now your sting. Well, this is kind of what we spoke about a couple of weeks ago when we said that body consciousness is not the realist version of me. Ego consciousness, we said, is not the deepest version of me. We think it is because at the center of our beings, the reality that we are calling spirit consciousness is kind of hard to pin down. We said this a couple of weeks ago. Because it's not accessed with the same ease of pin down ability, because it's a bigger reality than we normally think of as ourselves, we tend to focus more heavily on the outer layers of our conscious awareness. But that inner center, that inner center is more grand, more splendid, more substantive, more encompassing, more comprehensive than we usually allow when we use the word self. We don't think of the grandeur that is described by the divine center, the divine breath. We don't think of that in the same category that we think of when we use the word self. So we tend to be reductionist in the way that we think about ourselves. We tend to think of ourselves only as bodies or only as egos because we can contain that process, this deeper part, this uncontainable part, we tend not to acknowledge of as me. But that's the story of Easter, that this divine center, this spirit that was in Christ Jesus is also in you and is also in me. The story of Easter is that at the center of who you are, you and I are made of the same stuff that God is made of. It was true we saw in Jesus, and it is true the generations affirm in you and me. There is an indestructible reality at the center of who we are. There is an unperishing center, an enduring essence, a permanent presence, and it is in you 
and it is in me. And it is bigger than ego, and it is bigger than body, and it is of God, and it is in God, and it is by God, and it is through God. And we grapple with words to describe it because it's bigger than we can contain. And so we settle on the imperfect, inadequate words, the divine center, or spirit consciousness. That's our story. That's what we celebrate year on year. And that's the experience that doesn't fit into words or doesn't fit into mental constructs, but that which year on year, century on century, people experience. And they say, yes, oh, now I understand what the years have spoken of. We see it in the life of Jesus. We see it in the myth of the phoenix. We see it in ourselves, what Jesus called the way and the truth and the life. We saw it there and we see it here. And Easter points us back to that experience year after year. Each year, some will seek anew that experience of the indwelling spirit of the risen Christ. And each year, what we seek, we find. And it is the finding year after year, generation after generation, that brings longevity to Easter. Now, sometimes that quest comes in the form of questions, questions that when answered change everything and change us. Example, how is it that Jesus did not fear death to his body? The answer to that question will change us. How is it that generation after generation after him, his followers did not fear death to their bodies? The answer to that question will change us. And how is it that generation after generation, so many have been willing, participate, have been willing participants in the death of their own ego selves, who have by degree seen deeper and deeper and truer and truer versions of themselves emerge from the flames of the death of the old? It's our story of Easter. It's our story of new life emerging from the death of the old. It's our annual call to reawaken to the divine center. It's our annual affirmation that there's a divine center to which we can awaken. There's a way of being us that is bigger than the thoughts we think. There's a way of being us that is bigger than the feelings we feel. There's a way of being us that is bigger than the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves and about the world that we live in, those defining realities that determine our instincts and determine the lives that we live. There is a bigger reality. And this orienting reality within us, when we awaken to it, changes everything. We love our bodies we cling to them. If, something, if some harm befalls our bodies, we don't like it, not one little bit. But when we awaken to the divine center, our fear of losing our bodies begins to subside. And that happens generation after generation. We love our egos. We love the two faces that Robin spoke of last week. We love that carefully constructed face that we make by ourselves, for ourselves, to tell ourselves who we are. And we like the carefully constructed face that we make by ourselves in order for public presentation, in order to show you who I am. We love those faces. We love that version that we call the ego self. But as much as we love and as much as we cling to the ego version of self, when we awaken to the deeper life reality that indwells us, the indwelling Holy Spirit, the divine image version of self, the God-centered version of self, when we awaken to that divine center, our fear of the death of the ego self begins to subside. This is the story of Easter. 
our annual call to awaken to something bigger and truer and deeper that says death is not the final word. There is something greater. Well, this year I want to highlight one aspect of our story that uh, we do each year. We choose one aspect to highlight. And today I want to highlight one of our core truths that is resident in the story of Easter. So <clears throat> during this time when we've been doing these lessons on our core truths at NRCC, what will we maintain while we move into this new space, here's one of the truths that we have highlighted many times. And that is that everything is connected. So here's a truth. When we get down to the center, when we get down to the realer and the truer dimensions of life, oneness is a better way to describe reality than two-ness. You heard George reference that this morning in our music. If you've been part of our community for any length of time, you've heard us speak about oneness as a better way of describing reality than two-ness. Because the further we go on the spiritual journey, the more that we begin to see that everything is connected. The Versions of reality in which we see everything as separated are lesser truths. In fact, they are illusory truths. The further we go on the spiritual journey, the more we begin to see that even though I feel deeply that I am me and you are you, that we are two, that we are not one, the journey changes us. The further we walk on it, the more and more we begin to sense that our sense of separateness is an illusion. Now, in other lessons, I've spoken at length about how quantum physics is changing our understanding of the world that we live in and really supporting this idea. But long before physics began to figure out how everything is connected to everything else, the spiritual tradition had already intuited it. My body is not your body. We are two. We are not one. My ego is not your ego. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My feelings are not your feelings. And the stories that I tell myself are not the stories that you tell yourself. But... My body is not the realest or truest version of me. And my thoughts are not the realest or truest version of me. Nor are the stories that I tell myself, stories that determine how I experience you and act in and react to this world. When the spiritual tradition intuited oneness a long time ago, when Jesus affirmed it in John 17, when Paul, when Paul spoke about it in the one-body passages of Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 10, when the mystics from our tradition, who had been on the fringes for such a long time, were insisting that oneness was a better framework than two-ness, when this truth was intuited a long time ago, we were referencing the divine center. We were talking about this deepest defining part of our beings because it is there. It is there in that central reality that we are more one than two, more connected than separated, more joined than divided, more attached than unattached. So earlier we sang the song, This is the Sound of One Voice. <clears throat> and it's a beautiful song. Four people sing together and say, This is the sound of oneness. This is the sound of one voice. It's a beautiful song, but it's a very demanding song. It's demanding because it points us to this theme that is resident in Easter. Because it's a call to a different way of living life. It points us toward a demanding way of living life. A spiritual journey kind of demanding way to live life. Because the spiritual journey insists that we bring the physical self, the body consciousness self, 
And the ego self, the ego consciousness self, the spiritual journey insists that we bring those two versions of self into alignment with the truer truth and the realer real. In other words, the song points us to this spiritual demand of the journey that we bring our two-ness layers of consciousness into alignment with our oneness layer of consciousness. The two-ness layers of consciousness where we touch each other and where we live life with one another, where the rubber of our lives hits the road, in those contexts, we need to be bringing the oneness center to bear on how we live that life. And so in essence, the song is pointing us toward a very spiritually demanding life, that we bring the two-ness of being, being human into alignment with the oneness. So it's a song that points us to some hard work, the hard work of the death of the lower versions of who we are. I'm getting hot. Are you all getting hot? All right, so first of all, let's open the doors. And then, Grampy, if you would go to the end of the hallway and there's a box on the wall, if you would open it up and just start <laughs> pumping it down until it zeroes out. <laughs> so, it wasn't just you, dear. I know. <laughs> she gets a little hot sometimes nowadays. <laughs> and it's not because spring is here. <laughs> so let me tell you what we're talking about when it comes to real life. When it comes to real life, in our community, we work really hard on conflict resolution. We work really hard on the self-awareness to be able to understand our own stories. And we work really hard on self-disclosure in order to be able to share our stories one with another. Because in the throes of conflict, it's very difficult to understand what we're actually fighting about unless we know what's going on inside of us. And it is an endeavor to take what is the embodiment of two-ness, people separated by conflict, and create out of that a oneness. So if you've been part of one of our conflict resolution groups, you've kind of heard about this, you kind of know how it works. That's actually what we're talking about when we say bringing the two-ness layers of consciousness into alignment with the oneness layers. Because resolving a conflicted relationship, yeah, it makes your life more pleasant. Uh, but that's only part of why we do it. Working toward oneness is about more than having a pleasant, conflict-free life. It's about hammering out a life that reflects the deeper life reality that is the foundation of the spiritual journey. Because the divine center is the reality from which all reality comes. So when we align ourselves with that central place in practical ways, like bringing oneness into our conflicted relationships, we actually align ourselves with truth as truth is, as reality, with reality as reality is. Conflict resolution, in a way, makes things on heaven, on earth, as they are in heaven. That's true of conflict resolution. It's also true of social justice. Social justice is demanding. Justice and fairness, not just for me and for mine, but for all. Privilege and opportunity, not just for me and for mine, but for all. If we're on the, in the throes of, an, of a privilege and opportunity imbalance, oneness works toward bringing that two together. So, that's hard to do. If you're on the side of privilege, we don't want to see oneness 
because justice for all is an easy blindness to have. It's very convenient for us because when we see that we would have an unshared advantage, it's very demanding to do anything about that. But it's also hard if you're not on the side of privilege to see the oneness perspective because we want to see the other side as the adversary or as the enemy or as the other. And oneness says we are not two, we are one, which is very demanding. It's very demanding to insist that our blind brothers or sisters see. That's hard work. It's easier to just stay in the framework of two-ness. It's very demanding to insist that we see with our own blind spots. If we are one and not two, it's not okay for some children to have access to opportunity and for other children to not, because we are not two, we are one. It makes no sense for some to have access and others not. It is not okay when we live in a oneness framework or when we're bringing our outer layers of consciousness into alignment with the central one. It is not okay for some of us to get a break when we screw up and others not. It's a demanding proposition to bring the world of body consciousness and ego consciousness into alignment with the singular world of the deeper life reality, to bring it into alignment with spirit consciousness or with oneness consciousness. So it's a beautiful song, but it's a demanding song because it requires something of us. It requires death. It requires death of all that accompanies the two-ness reality in which we are so heavily immersed. It requires death to our limited definitions of self. It requires death to ego as me. It requires death to body as me. It requires that we take up our cross and that we follow Jesus to death. It requires death of my shrunken reality, death of my shrunken world. It requires death to my limited two-ness world and my limited two-ness reality, my limited me and mine world, my us versus them world, my otherizing world. It requires death to the we are Christians and they are Muslims world. It requires death to the we are the straight people, they are the gay people world. It requires death to the we are the rich people, they are the poor people world. It requires the death to the we are this political party and they are idiots. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful song, but it's a demanding song. It's rooted in the hope and the promise of Easter that Tunis must inevitably die. Tunis is going to die when your body dies, and your body's going to die. Tunis dies when your ego dies, and your ego is going to die. That's an inevitability. And either we go from that death to nothing, or we go from that death into something transcendent. We go from that death in which death, we go from that into the promise of Easter that there is life on the other side of death. There is something bigger than the thoughts you think and the feelings that you feel and the stories that you tell. There is something bigger than this body. There is something bigger than this mind. There is a place where death has no sting and death has no victory. And that is the message of Easter, that there is something bigger on the other side. Make no mistake, the, the story of Easter also encompasses the week that we just went through 
which was the celebration of loss and the celebration of death and the, ce the celebration of everything that we thought was going to be one way not being that way. The death of everything that we held dear and everything precious is taken from us. That's also part of Easter. But it says that at the end of that time, there is something that is greater and that something is defined by oneness better than it is defined by two-ness. And that's the point of the spiritual journey. That's the point of spiritually awakening, that we gain access to this deeper life reality, that we get access to a bedrock truth that is bigger than ego and bigger than body, that we gain access to something that is beyond, that is eternal, that is immortal, that is infinite, that is undying. And the point of spiritual awakening, the point of the spiritual journey that takes us to awakening is to align ourselves in our daily lives, in our physical lives, in our mental thought lives, in our emotional feeling lives, in the stories that we tell ourselves lives, to align ourselves with the deeper life reality and to awaken to the unfathomable truth, the truth that is in us, the truth that is bigger than can be contained, but that when we experience, it changes us. Because oneness, when our outer layers of consciousness aligns with it, changes the relationships that we have with the people that we love. Oneness, when it begins to penetrate the outer layers of consciousness, changes the relationships that we have with the world that we live in, the people that we work with, the things that we see in the world around us what we will tolerate in the world around us and what we will no longer tolerate in the world around us. It changes what we see and what we see being changed changes what we will accept happening in the world around us. Oneness is a demanding proposition. But having once seen it, it is transformative in what it does. So when you look back over our history as a tradition, when people have awakened to this oneness reality, We've changed the world. This is a sick time for the Christian church. We're not doing well. Right now, the word Christian is a byword. It is better to not be a Christian than to be one today. But that's not always been the case. There are times when we awaken to these deeper lives realities that we bring about universal education. We begin to start hospital care. We begin to care for those who are outcast. We begin to work for the enfranchising of all instead of just the few. There are times when we awaken to this deeper life reality that is embodied in the message of Easter and oneness begins to penetrate our outer lives. It changes how we live. Easter changes everything. That's my prayer for us as a community that we would experience this indwelling divine, this transformative process, that it would change you and that it would change me, change the way that we live. Spirit of God, may it be so among us. In Jesus' name, amen.